Romans, the first chapter. And I read verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The righteous man shall live by faith. Let's bow together. Lord, the declaration of your gospel and your word on one level is a task that mortals can engage in in their own energy, in their own power, in their own speech, in their own mind and effort. And yet we understand this morning that at another level, if preaching is to take place and hearing is to be eventful, we must have your Holy Spirit to attend to your word. And so we ask in these moments that the air would not simply be moved and vocal cords used and ears exercised, but we may hear with the hearing of faith and we may speak with the anointing of the Holy Ghost. We pray, our Father, that you would glorify Christ, for it's in his name we ask it. Amen. The day was October 31st. The year was 1517. The event was the celebration of what was called in the church calendar All Saints Day. A time in which the church for centuries had remembered those who had been canonized or elevated to the status of sainthood. A time of remembrance, a time of festivity, a time of celebration. A time in which the university church and community of the city of Wittenberg in Germany would have been abuzz with interest and religious activity. You see, religion was a part of the very culture of that time. It was unthinkable to be a citizen of Germany and not be a member of the church. It was unthinkable to be anything but religious. Everyone was religious. And everyone was religious as regards both their baptism into the Christian church as well as their actions in following out the precepts of the Christian church in their regular communing with the church and with Christ in what had come to be known as the Mass. But on this particular All Saints Day in 1517, a German Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther, a man who was destined by his father's wish at least to become an attorney so he could make much money for the family, but who had been knocked from his horse by a lightning bolt and had promised St. Anne that he would be a priest because his life had been saved. And in a series of providences, he had entered the priesthood. He had, with great trembling, offered his first mass, fearing that he might spill the blood of Christ in the front of the church. And with great terror in his soul, this man had labored to find peace with God through the church. He understood that God was holy and to be feared. And he understood that God was a righteous God. And he knew if he knew anything else that Martin Luther was not a righteous man. He knew if he knew anything else that he was a man without hope of eternal salvation unless in grace God came down to him and rescued him. And his understanding was that God came down to him as a trembling sinner through the sacraments of the church 
and through the ritual of obedience. And that as he sought the merit of Christ in his own heart, in his own experience, he would be made right with God through the church. And he labored assiduously to be made right with God. He went to his confessor, Stoppitz, on many occasions. And before he could leave the confessional, he would turn and come back and confess more sin for fear that his venial sins had not been numbered and accounted properly in the confessional. He had no peace. And he labored for that peace. It was in the midst of this struggle in 1517, having been to the eternal city so-called of Rome and having viewed the Vatican up close and personally, as we might say today, he had come home distressed in his soul that what he had seen was pure religious corruption. His heart was breaking and he wanted to challenge the church to a discussion of the problems that he saw in his own time. And he took a step that was very, in a sense, in its time, uneventful. We now think of it as very eventful, and so we call October 31st Reformation Day. But in fact, the step that he took was quite uneventful in its context at the time. He drew up in the Latin language, which was the language not of the common people, of course, which was German, but he drew up in the Latin language a series of 95 statements, theses, that he wished to have the church consider carefully and enter into discussion of that she might reform herself internally and correct the corruptions, the immoralities, and the unethical practice that he had seen in the church and in his visit to Rome. Particularly, the theses addressed the issue of what was called an indulgence. An indulgence was a kind of privilege that was purchased by an individual believer An indulgence was something they bought so they could shorten the time of their loved ones who were in purgatory, being cleansed and prepared for justification and arrival in heaven ultimately. And so Luther had seen these indulgences that were now being sold and hawked like wares on street corners, almost like modern Christian television appealing for funds. The church was offering these indulgences and offering to pray for the souls of departed loved ones if you would buy such an indulgence and using the money to build the new basilica in Rome and to advance the strategy of Christ's church. Quite honestly, there's not much different in visible Christianity today and a lot of what was going on then. Martin Luther looked at this situation and he said it must change. And so he put these theses out. Interestingly, the theses themselves, if you bother to read them, You can read them in just a few moments, in English, of course. And when you read them, you'll be struck by the fact that on the whole, they're not very radical and not very strong, and they don't sound like the stuff of revolution and change. It's simply a a, a searching soul asking questions of a false and improper practice. At about noon on that day, October 31st, Luther took these Latin theses, he took his famous so-called hammer, and he walked across the town to the church or to the door of the church at the University of Wittenberg and there where he served as a parish priest he nailed these theses almost like we would use a bulletin board on a computer service today he nailed them to the door and challenged his peers to discuss with him these concerns in the providence of God unknown to Luther at the time there was launched from that event and what followed the greatest recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ since the time of the apostles. We now call it in our history books the Protestant Reformation. Luther himself later wrote of that day and of those theses that he posted on the door of the church. When I wrote those theses, he said of himself, I was still a mad papist. 
I didn't have any clue about what really the gospel was all about. He was still an unregenerate man on that day, apparently. And he stood there hoping to dialogue with the church that he loved, that he might bring about some kind of necessary change. And to his surprise, the church not only heard him, but responded with quick action against him which launched a series of things that followed in terms of his writings and how the church responded to his writings, which led him uh, to, to the Diet of Worms, to the Augsburg and the Spire, and to a series of historic events between 1517 and 1521, apparently which during that time Martin Luther translating and teaching the epistle of Paul to the Galatians and the epistle of Paul to the Romans finally himself discovered the gospel. And when he discovered the gospel, it was no longer an issue of indulgences and bad church practice. It was an issue of the gospel which causes the church to stand or fall. And what Luther began to see was, I'm a part of a visible Christian church that is falling and has fallen because it has lost the gospel. Whatever else it has, if the church doesn't have the gospel, it doesn't have Christ. And if it doesn't have Christ, it's not a Christian assembly. And so he began to pose these even more revolutionary questions as he studied the epistle of Paul to the Romans. And as you may have gathered by this point in the story, it was the words of our text in verse 17 that finally, by the Spirit of God, were used as a hammer to strike the anvil of Luther's Catholic heart and to open himself to the understanding of the gospel in such a powerful way that one may say Romans 1.17 became the text that launched Western civilization as we know it today. It was out of this text and its meaning that all of the advances of our culture and civilization that flow from the Renaissance and ultimately through the Protestant Reformation into the present. And we still reap the benefits today. You reap the benefits in your education. You reap the benefits in your churches. You reap the benefits in your study of history and philosophy and science because in the spirit of God's providence, he opened the meaning of this text to one man and it spread like wild across Europe and change the church from the Middle Ages to the modern era and to the present ministry of the gospel and the mission of Christ. Now it's imperative then that we understand how this text gripped young Martin Luther's heart. How this word of God spoke to him as it should speak to us. I want you to look at this text with me this morning and I want you to think about what is going on here, what Paul is saying, and how under God the words of the Apostle, the Word of God became for Martin Luther the very Word of grace and the doorway into paradise. I want you to notice, and I, I beg of you to look at the text carefully with me, because there are words that you may know and they may roll off of your tongues with much ease because you know them, but maybe you've never really carefully paid attention to them. So I beg you to look at it with me as I speak from verse 17. For you notice that what Paul says and what captured Luther so profoundly in every word of this text, in the very beginning of the word, he says, for in it. And as was read this morning here on the platform, a little word gospel was inserted into the reading properly because it's a reference back to verse 16. What is the it of verse 17? It is the gospel of verse 16, which is God's power for in the gospel. For in the gospel, there is power. 
The power is not in our philosophies. The power is not in our systems of interpretation. The power is not in our creeds and confessions, as valuable as they are. The power is not being in the right church identity or the right association of churches or the right context. The power of the Christian church is in its message, and its message is the gospel of Christ. In fact, the word gospel becomes for Paul repeatedly a virtual synonym for the term the word of God. To preach the word of God, which he charges Timothy to do. In 2 Timothy 4.2, he says, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season. And he tells Timothy how to conduct the ministry. The phrase preach the word means literally preach the gospel. It's a synonym. And so he says in the gospel, there is power, God's power to save to the uttermost. But I want you to notice the first thing he says about the gospel is that in it, that is in the gospel, there must be a revelation. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God, says Paul, is revealed. The gospel must be revealed. The late Martin Lloyd-Jones said, there is ultimately no Christianity without revelation. There is ultimately no Christianity without revelation. There must be an unveiling. There must be a pulling back, as it were, of the curtain so we can see what we have not seen. There must be a shining forth of the glory of God in the message of Christ, the gospel, so that it is revealed by the Spirit supernaturally to human hearts. It's not a matter of having the right stuff packed into my thinking and having made the right decision on the basis of what's packed into my thought process, there must be a revelation. I must not only know the gospel, I must respond to it. And to respond to the gospel, there has to be revelation. No human intuition, no human intelligence, no human insight will bring you to the knowledge of Christ in the gospel. We must understand it's a supernatural matter. Men are continually trying to find God in various ways. The ancients sought God in their own ways. The Greeks had a pantheon of gods and goddesses. The Romans had not only a pantheon of gods and goddesses, but ultimately the Caesars claimed to be gods and demanded of their citizenry that they worship them. And though moderns may not have their pantheon of gods and goddesses, nonetheless, we pursue the so-called quest for truth, the search for reality. We're searching for that meaningful other or that meaningful experience or that meaningful encounter. We're on a quest to search. But my brothers and sisters in Christ, the gospel is not the end of a search. It's not the answer to the human quest. The gospel is the revelation of God. It's an announcement. It's an unveiling. It's an exposing of blind eyes and dead hearts to that which becomes the supernatural power of God to raise to life. It is, in the words of verse 17, a proclamation, an unveiling and an announcement. It must be something that is made plain. It must be something that by the Holy Spirit in His sovereign hands becomes so powerfully attractive that nothing, absolutely nothing, can keep you away from it. The reason the martyrs will give their lives for it is because they've seen what Christless eyes have never seen. The reason I abandon myself and flee to it is because there is an attraction in it that I find no attraction in in any other message. I ask you this morning, does the gospel attract you? 
Has there been a revelation to you personally by the Spirit of God, of the power of God in the gospel? Do you find this message a pearl of great price that you would depart with everything you possess for this message? Because, not because you reasoned yourself to that place, because if you have, you'll eventually walk away from it. Or you'll handle it loosely and carelessly. But because there has been a revelation of God and you have seen the outshining of the glory of Christ in the gospel itself. Now, it's important to say further about this revelation that it's not a new revelation. If you drop back to verse 2 of chapter 1, you'll see that Paul speaks of this gospel and his being set apart for it as an apostle, a sent one. Verse 2, he says, which he promised, God promised, beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This message, I say, is not a new message. This is not a, a new gospel. This gospel message has been around for quite a long time. In fact, Paul quotes, as you notice in verse 17, from Habakkuk chapter 2, and he says, the righteous man shall live by faith. He quotes from the Old Covenant Scriptures. Romans 4 devotes an entire chapter to Abraham and his coming to the gospel through faith before Christ. So that Jesus can say in the gospel of John of Abraham that centuries before I came, centuries before Calvary, Abraham Rejoice to see my day, said Jesus, and he saw it. What did Abraham see when he drew the knife to plunge it through his son Isaac? What was it that he saw? Did he see some apparition? Did he have some vision? Did he have some appearance of an angel? No. Jesus says he saw my day by faith on the basis of revelation. He saw what eyes that are untouched can never see. He saw what natural mind can never understand. He saw Christ. He saw the gospel. He looked forward through the types and the shadows and the ceremonies in faith to the coming of Christ. And he believed. In fact, Paul argues this is the basis of his justification, that on the basis not of any keeping of the law, which had not yet been given, but on the basis of his looking in faith and in hope to the Christ that was revealed to him, he saw something, he believed it on the mountain, and he was made right with God. He was justified. And whether or not he was justified before, then, or after, in terms of time, is not the question. He probably was justified before this. But he went on seeing and seeing and seeing and believing because he had had a revelation of God. Paul puts this in Romans chapter 16 in the same way to show us this is not a new message where he says in verse 25 and 26, Now to him who is able to establish you. And this is very poignant language in the light of this revelation. In verse 25, he's able to establish you according to my gospel. My gospel. It's not only the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not only a gospel of salvation, but Paul says it is my gospel. Do you have a gospel? Is it yours? Has it laid hold of you? Have you seen something in that gospel by the revelation of God? And so he says, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, the sacred secret hidden in the past, kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, now is openly revealed, and by the scriptures of the prophets, and so forth. All of this, he says in verse 26, leading to the obedience of faith, leading to the kind of faith which in the essence and nature of the case causes the person who believes to be obedient. It's obediential by its character. Now, what does all of this mean? Well, simply this, 
that the gospel was clearly preached and clearly revealed to those who were men and women of faith under the old covenant. This is the same thing the Apostle Peter says in chapter 1 of his first epistle. 1 Peter 1 verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them. Listen to that. The Spirit of Christ was within the prophets. Pointing from them and in them to a time. An event. A historical season. Pointing. So they would seek to know the person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. You say, where is that in the Old Testament? Why, it's sprinkled from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of Malachi. The sufferings and the glories of Messiah who would come. And so when Jesus is born, you have two unusual enigmatic figures named Anna and Simeon who are aged Israelites who are waiting for the consolation of Israel. What are they waiting for? They're looking for the glories and the sufferings of the Messiah who is to come. They knew Isaiah 53. They knew the psalmist's cries of dereliction. They knew there was someone coming who would fulfill all the shadows, all the types, all the blood on Jewish altars. And that would be a person of the lineage of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, who would be Messiah. And the hope and desire of all nations. And so they looked intently for him in the gospel. Verse 12 says it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced, proclaimed, preached to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Notice the gospel cannot be preached as revelatory with power without the Holy Spirit of God. Upon both preacher and hearer. Though this gospel was vaguely revealed in shadows and types, and though it may have been dimly at times understood in the light of the historical event which takes place on Golgotha's hill outside of the ancient city of Jerusalem, I say to you on the basis of Paul's consistent witness here in Romans and beyond, they saw the glory of God in the gospel and looked for the coming of Christ Himself. There was a revelation to the first believer in the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament Scriptures and down to the present day. If you would be God's child, there must be such a revelation to you. You can't be reasoned into the Gospel. You can't be decisioned into the Gospel. Oh, you can make a decision and you can use your reason and you should use your reason. But by your natural innated reason, through your own human decision, you will not be born of God. There must be a revelation. Not of human decision, says Jesus in John 1, but born of God. Born of God. I want you to notice secondly in this great Reformation text that the revelation not only must be given by God to us, but it has a specific content. It's not just any revelation. It's not just a vision or a high or an emotional experience or I saw this and somebody else saw something else and... Somebody saw plates in New York and turned into one religion and somebody, you have your experience, I have mine. You have your truth, I have my truth. That's the kind of day we live in. The only untruth that seems to exist today is that someone claims to have the truth. The only intolerant thing is to be intolerant. That's the kind of time in which we live. We must be precisely clear about this. There not only is a revelation of God, 
But it's not a revelation of feeling good or getting things straightened out in my life. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ in His doing and in His dying on behalf of those who are sinners. It's a revelation of God in the Gospel. And so he can say there's content here. Now, in many ways, here we come to the key expression in this whole Roman epistle. Here is the key word, and here is the word that under God, by the Holy Spirit, unleashed in the thinking of this German monk, Martin Luther, all the force and power of the Protestant movement. It was the understanding of this content, of this word, of this phrase, that sparked within Luther the understanding that changed the civilization of his time and beyond. No more vital verse, perhaps, in all the Scriptures. No more vital phrase than the phrase that fills the content of this revelation. What do I refer to? Simply this, verse 17. For in the Gospel there is a revelation of God. What is the revelation of that is in the Gospel? I answer in verse 17. It is a revelation of the righteousness of God. A revelation of the righteousness of God. Now, it is therefore imperative this morning, if we're to understand the gospel and the content of the revelation that every believer must have to be a believer, it's imperative that we understand very clearly what this word righteousness means. We must understand that none of us is righteous, that the consistent message of Scripture is that none of us inherently is righteous. Isaiah 64 says, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. You go out to the automobile, you open the hood, you take a rag, you work on the car, you get your hands grimy and greasy and dirty, and you wipe them on this white rag, and at the end of the day, you put the white rag on the shelf in the garage, and it's as dirty and scuzzy and grimy as a rag could be. It looks like nothing you would place at the dinner table. It is a filthy rag. That's a description. Not of your sin. Oh no, not of your sin, but of your righteousness. When you've done everything you can do in righteousness, when you have been everything the Scripture requires you to be, when you've confessed all of your sins, made all of your commitments, done all of your deciding, done all of your educating, committed your life to serve Christ, and done everything you can do, it's all ultimately, if it's done in the spirit of human serving, righteousness. Human righteousness. You see, Luther, like Paul, was a devoutly religious man. He did everything that was required of him and more. The very problem many of us have who grow up in Christian churches is precisely here. We think somehow our decision plus our righteousness will somehow equal being accepted by God. We put our confidence in an event or a place or a preacher or a time or a thought. But the text does not say your sin is as a dirty rag in Isaiah 64. It says your righteousness. God sees our righteousness and says dirty rags. This is what Paul is saying in Romans 3. Listen to verse 10. He says, what then are we better than they? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. Not even one. There's none righteous. Not a one. There is none who seeks for God. Not one. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. Not even one. The finest philanthropist. The finest, most devout member of the church who does good. God says, it's not good. In the sight of my righteousness, it is not acceptable. 
So there you have it. The greatest need that man has is to be able to meet God in a place of acceptance and no condemnation. But how can this be if my righteousness is unacceptable indeed as a filthy rag? Well, that brings me to the second observation about this very pregnant phrase, the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is revealed here in our text. And this is important, especially for you who studied the Bible, as many of you have. It's very important that you get a hold of this. The righteousness of God here is not an attribute of God. It's not as if Paul is saying, this is God's righteousness that is revealed. God reveals to us His grace, His mercy, His holiness, His righteousness as qualities or characteristics or excellencies of His character. Now, God is righteous. But what is being revealed here is not God's righteousness as His attribute of righteousness. Paul is not saying, look at the righteousness of God and admire how righteous God is. It's true that we should look at God and admire His righteousness, but that's not what verse 17 is saying. No, I say this is a revelation. This is an announcement. God, if you please, has taken the megaphone of Scripture by the Spirit and He is shouting, as it were, plainly, clearly. He's not stuttering. He speaks and He reveals. But what is being said here is merely that God reveals His righteousness. He reveals it to a man. He reveals the righteousness of Himself to human beings. Now, what is this righteousness then? I submit to you on the basis of what Paul is saying here as well as throughout this epistle, but particularly in Romans 3.31. And I read Romans 3.31. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Do we nullify the law through faith? Is faith the antonym or the opposite of the law? No. Do we put the law aside by faith? Does faith replace the law? Great confusion. There there are many well-meaning Bible-reading Christians who say, well, God had one system of dealing with people in the Old Testament, it was law, and He has another one in the New Testament, it's faith. So, we're not under law, we're under faith, or we're under grace, which is another way of saying much the same thing. But listen, Paul says, do we nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, what do we do? We establish the law. On the basis of faith, the law is established. It's built on a firm foundation, an unchangeable foundation. So what is the righteousness of God in Romans 1.17? I submit to you it is conformity to the law of God. It is conformity to the law of God. The righteousness of God which is revealed is the perfection of human conformity to the law of God. It is perfection in holiness. It is meeting all the demands of the law, all that the law requires, perfectly. Now we must be perfectly clear about this. God does not accept us on the basis of our faith as if faith were the ground or the basis of our standing. God doesn't, in other words, look at you and say, well, now that person has stopped trying to keep the law. That person recognizes that they can't keep it. And so they've decided to give up on law and try faith. As if somehow the law is now nullified on the basis that I'm going to try to live by faith since I can't live by the law, I'll live by faith. No, my friends, the law must be kept and it must be kept perfectly because the law is lawful and the law reveals the character of a holy God and a holy God demands that His law be perfectly kept and He says no sinful thing, no person who's a lawbreaker shall ever be allowed into my holy presence. Therefore, salvation, listen to me carefully, salvation is on the basis, on the ground that the law is perfectly kept. Did you hear me? 
The law must be perfectly kept or you shall never stand in the presence of God. You say, if that be the case, I'm finished. That's precisely where Luther was. He was finished. And when he saw this text, he saw the righteousness of God and he said of the righteousness of God, I despised it. I hated it. It was the worst word in all the Bible to me. It was a word that not only kept me up at night, it pierced my heart. It drove me to virtual insanity. The righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, the holy standard of God's law, conformity to his perfect will. I cannot. I dare not. I shall not. He was in absolute utter turmoil because he understood this fact. God will only accept the righteous person. The only person God will ever allow to enter His holy presence is a perfectly righteous person. And He knew that He wasn't. Which, by the way, is the problem we have today because very few people really understand the righteousness of God or their own unrighteousness. Now, we must be perfectly clear about this. What is the gospel about? What does the gospel have to do with all of this? Well, the gospel is not about our happiness. There's not a word in this epistle of personal happiness through the gospel. The gospel is not about my emotional security or my self-fulfillment or my self-esteem. The gospel is not about my experience. The gospel is not primarily about my conversion experience. The gospel is not primarily about when I went forward or how I got saved or all of this business that is a part of the modern evangelical church. The gospel is primarily about the righteousness of God. All of this has led to a spurious kind of... Christianity that has denied the very principles that sparked the Reformation. And where it is all taking us historically and theologically is right back to the Middle Ages and right back to Rome. Because we have a gospel of experience and a gospel of faith mixed with other things and a gospel that doesn't grapple with the righteousness of God. And therefore, we've lost touch with our foundation. We still use the word Protestant. We even use the word evangelical or conservative Christians. But we don't know what it means. God's law must be kept. This is precisely what Paul says in Romans 3.21. He says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed to by the law and the prophets. The law, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. There is a righteousness of God that is being revealed, manifested, displayed, apart from the law and its covenant. This is the same thing Paul is saying over in Philippians. Now, this, this really puts it together. So if you would turn over there for a moment to Philippians 3. Listen to these words. This is the apostle speaking much like Luther spoke, understanding and expressing much what Luther understood and expressed as he read Paul and by the Spirit of God understood Paul's experience. Paul describes himself. He speaks in verse 4 of his confidence in his human effort, the flesh, Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. This guy had it together. This guy did everything the law required. This guy did exactly what God's law required of him as he understood it. Verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, he was zealous, he was passionate. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. As to the righteousness that is external, that I can see and that I can understand what the law requires of me and the commandments, from my youth I have kept the commandments. 
From my youth I have followed God. From my youth I have believed and responded to the law. Verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. But more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things. And count them but rubbish in order that I may know Christ. Now watch this, verse 9. And may, be, and may be found in Him, in Christ. My goal, says Paul, is to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but simply believing in Jesus for salvation. That's not what he says. Look at the words. Not having a righteousness derived from my own self through the law, but making a decision of faith. No. I must have a righteousness, not one derived from the law through the flesh, but I must have a righteousness, verse 9 says, which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God to me on the basis of faith. There you have it. There's the commentary on Romans 1.17 that explains it. I must have the perfect righteousness of God. How do I have the perfect righteousness of God? On the basis of faith. On the basis of believing the promises. On the basis of trusting in the one who was perfectly righteous. On the basis of trusting the one who lived under the law. Who kept the law. Who obeyed the law. Both ceremonially. Civilly and morally. Who perfectly obeyed the Father in everything he did at every turn in his life. And then who submitted himself up to the predetermined will of the Father to die. As a lamb without blemish. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He fulfilled all the requirements of the law. He was the righteousness of God. And so the writer of Scripture can say, He learned obedience. The Son of God learned by doing obedience. He was not some kind of a robot who went around doing the right things. He was a human being, tempted like as we are, yet without sin. In all things tempted, in all things harassed by the enemy, in all things tossed about in his human spirit with all the frailties and all the stresses and all the problems of humanity, he lived under the law of God and he kept it perfectly. Thus he becomes the righteousness of God. God's demands must be satisfied. He doesn't have one standard for me and one for you and one for the church and one for the unchurched, one for the deeply devout and one for the non-devout. God's standard must be met. God made man holy and without sin, but he is tragically fallen and flawed and depraved and he is left with unrighteousness and no hope in this world. Without God, without hope in the world, without life for the world to come. But unless man is given the righteousness of God in Christ, he shall never be accepted by God. And so we come to the third and last thing we see in this text that gripped and changed and moved the heart of Martin Luther in the years following 1517. For Luther saw this, and if you're with me at this point, you will see readily that what he saw and what he understood condemned him all the more. He understands gospel and he looks at the church and says, there's the dispensary of gospel. He understands righteousness because righteousness condemns him. He understands revelation, at least that God must give something to a person, and he understands that God gives that to him as he follows the rituals and obedience to Christ's church. He understands that part up to a measure, but what he has never seen before, he now begins to understand by the Holy Spirit 
that this righteousness of God, which is in Christ alone, must become his and it becomes his through faith alone. And so the text goes on to say this gospel of God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. This righteousness must become mine. It must be appropriated. It must be taken. And Paul says it is appropriated or taken on the basis of faith to faith. What does that mean, faith to faith? Well, something like this, by faith in the first and by faith in the last and by faith all in between. By faith and by faith only. By faith alone, as Luther came to put it. Sola fide. But what is faith? What is faith here in Romans 1? Well, there's much confusion, even in our own day, about what faith is. There are those who say faith is something we all have naturally. And they'll use illustrations, well-meaning illustrations, when they preach the gospel or witness to other people. They'll say, well, you have faith. You're seated in a chair and you didn't even hardly have to think about it. You look at the chair, you rationally reason the chair will hold me up. It's holding up seven or eight hundred other people here. So I'll sit down in this blue chair and I'll be all right. That's faith, we're told. That's not biblical faith. That's not biblical faith at all. That's a subjective sort of uh, deduction that you make on the basis of, 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 a, of a habit and of an observation. There are others who say faith is the condition of salvation, as if God saves on the grounds of faith. If you have the right faith at the right time and the right person, or you go through the right decision, you say the right things, you do the right thing, and we've got people who say, well, I don't know whether I know Christ, and then people will say, well, I'll tell you what. I'll say these words, and you say them with me, and when we're all done, you'll know you have faith. It's a, it, it's a condition. It's a basis. That's not biblical faith. And then others say, well, faith is some kind of other standard than the law. The law is one way and faith is another. And as we've already seen, the faith is not an antithesis to the law. It doesn't nullify the law, as Paul says. Literally, what Paul says here is that salvation comes on the basis of faith from first to last. But what we must be perfectly clear about is that faith does not save us. We are saved, says Romans 1.17, and the rest of this epistle, for this is the doorway into all that Paul is about to say in the first 11 chapters. He is saying to us that faith does not save us. Rather, faith brings us to the place where the righteousness of Christ becomes ours. If we're to be saved, it is on the basis of Christ's righteousness. This is why there's no room, absolutely no room for any kind of human credit, any kind of human merit, any kind of human contribution. Any kind of human effort that results in rewards, as we sometimes think of them, that become mine on the basis of my good works, even as a Christian. This radically, this gospel of righteousness in Christ alone, by faith from first to last, alters almost the entirety of the way we begin to think and live as Christians. Let me give you an illustration. I hope most of you pray on a regular basis. I dare say, without knowing any of you personally, that when you pray like me, you often find yourself saying, I don't know why I'm here. I haven't had a good day. You ever had that kind of day? I haven't had a good day. I'm not righteous. The works of my own hands have not been pleasing to God. In fact, the thoughts I've had in the last 24 hours and the things I've done, I'm sure God is not interested in receiving my prayer at all. Now, what you're saying, whether you mean it or not and understand it or not, is this, something like this. When you think about your prayer that way, what you're thinking is that when you have lived right and when you have done right, then God hears you. And when you don't, he doesn't. But let me tell you, he doesn't hear you on the basis of any righteousness in you, perfected or performed by any power or great works of the Holy Spirit. He receives you always and only on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. 
So I bow on my knees and the enemy says, well, here you are again, you cotton-picking phony. I say, you got that right. Vile am I and full of sin. My righteousness is a filthy wreck. But I just preached it's, it's unrighteousness. It's unacceptable. Preach your heart out. God won't accept it on the basis of your preaching it. D- give your best. Do your best. Give of your best to the Master. Well, you should give of your best to the Master, but not on the basis that somehow your righteousness will accomplish anything. Even your best. It's the righteousness of Christ alone, or it's nothing. Faith is the vehicle, then, by which this is received. Faith is the conduit. Faith is the guilty hands that receive the gift. Faith is not the opposite, I say, of law, of everything we do. But faith is the opposite of everything we do on the basis of human righteousness. Paul says of his past, it's not worthy of boasting in, in comparison to Christ. Faith is the contradiction of everything meritorious in me. Faith is the opposite of everything that I can accomplish. Faith is everything I've attained, everything I've been awarded and rewarded and spoken highly of, counted as absolute nothing. Faith is saying my only hope, my only righteousness is in Christ and in His blood and in His person, in His doing and in His dying. And friends, that's where you start the Christian journey. That's how you grow in the Christian life. That's how you finish the race on the same basis that you began it, which is the Gospel. You don't receive the Gospel and then say, now how do I get into the deeper Christian life? Or how do I get into the better Christian life? Or how do I get filled with the Spirit? The work of the Spirit is consonant with the work of the Gospel. The more you believe the Gospel and live the Gospel, the more you're empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. I beg of you, understand this truth and you will have wisdom and knowledge beyond your education at this great school. You will have wisdom and knowledge to live and die your life in the Gospel of Christ and His righteousness only. And you will live by faith from first to last. Martin Luther then said of this finally, I could never get beyond this text. I could never get beyond it. Do you understand why? Here he found his liberty. Here his soul was released from human righteousness. He said of it, this expression, this abstract conception of the righteousness of God tormented me. But later he writes, oh, there is such a thing after all then as a just person, a righteous person. There is this abstract righteousness, but here is concrete righteousness. And I say, Martin, where is it found? And he said, in Christ alone. How does it become mine? By grace alone. How do I receive it? Through faith alone. The stumbling block to Luther was the righteousness of God. I say it must become again a stumbling block to the religious and the self-righteous and the evangelical. The righteousness of God must be a stumbling block so that we would stumble and look to Christ's righteousness only as our hope and our salvation in our life. Thus Luther could say when I saw this difference, that the law was one thing and the gospel another, I broke through finally. As I had formerly hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now began to regard it as my deepest and most comforting word, so that this expression of the Apostle Paul became for me a very truth and door and gate into paradise. My friends, I must ask you, what are you depending upon today? Where is your righteousness? Where is your hope? Where is your salvation, ultimately, objectively, finally? It's not in your heart. Oh, the Holy Spirit lives in believers, I understand that. Working out that which 
He works in by, this, by His presence and His power. I understand that. But the Holy Spirit works in you consistent with the gospel. And the gospel and the righteousness of God is not in you, inside of you. That's medieval Catholic theology. The gospel is at the right hand of God the Father. And as Wesley could write in the Great Awakening, five bleeding wounds he pleads at the Father's right hand for me. Do you understand that kind of language? Do you understand that your only hope, your only dress, your only righteousness is not in you, it's not inside of you, it's not you cooperating, it's at the right hand of God and by faith from first to last, you live your life on the basis of the righteousness which is there at God the Father's right hand. My friends, that's nothing more and nothing less than the Gospel. There was centuries later a young man who labored under the law of God. He knew the writings of the Puritans, almost some of them by memory. He had mastered the writings of church fathers. He had studied the great pages of church history. He had grown up as a son of a manse and the grandson of the manse. He knew the will and work of God. He had set under the finest gospel preaching of his time. He used to slip out into the porch and out into the cemetery by the side of his grandfather's church and lean up against the tombstones. And as a boy of seven and eight and nine, he would read Watson and Owen and the Puritans with great avid interest. But he could find no peace because he knew that the righteousness of God screamed out against all of his effort and all of his religious attempt and all of his attempts to live and obey and respond. And he was without Christ and without God and without hope, though he was a very moral, upright Young man of whom great promise and hope had been expressed by those who were around him as he grew in wisdom. One day this young man, in the year 1852, or 1850, was going to church on a snowy day. He could not get to the church he intended to go to, but he found his way into a little Wesleyan chapel. Some 12 to 15 people were present. The minister, he says later, apparently could not get there, so a lay exhorter entered the pulpit. And this man writes later, this lay exhorter preached such a terrible sermon, he said all he could do was just say the same thing over and over, and he slaughtered the king's English. He virtually destroyed his whole effort to preach. He broke all the rules. He did everything wrong homiletically. But he looked out in this sanctuary, in this little Wesleyan chapel on Artillery Street in London, and he looked at this 16-year-old boy, and he said, Young man, you look miserable. Now, I don't advise you to generally look at somebody in the congregation and say, You look miserable. But he did by the Spirit of God that day say to that young man, you look miserable. And he quoted the prophet Isaiah to him and he said, young man, if you will look to him, you will live. He said, look, look, look. To which C.A. Spurgeon later wrote, I looked and I looked until I looked my eyes out. And I left that chapel a new creature in Christ. I ask you this morning, have you ever looked? Have you ever seen the glory of Christ and the righteousness of God in Jesus? If you have, you understand why Paul can say, this is the power of God and His salvation. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the Gospel. For in it is the righteousness of God. In this glorious message there is power. I pray for the church of Jesus Christ today that in this land in which there are so many Christian books and ministries and schools and materials and resources that we would have a recovery of this gospel which is power. 
And I pray God particularly today for each student in this place that as they study to show themselves approved, to, to work in various disciplines in life, to rear a family, to nurture another generation, to work in, in, in industry and in science and business and in the church and to labor under the mandate of Christ to live for Him and for His glory, that they would always do so with this gospel as the foundation upon which all that they do is built. May they understand the gospel. May it be power on this campus. May it be power in their lives. May they reckon on the righteousness of Christ alone as their only hope. God, I pray this because this is your word. This is your message. And by it comes your will to human beings who believe. And so I pray it through Christ our Lord, our righteousness, my righteousness. Amen.